morning, everybody. It's good to be with you, albeit online this morning. My name is Ross, and gosh, it was so good for my heart to hear those introductory words from Holem this morning. My heart needed that reminder, and it's been so good for my heart to be able to sing these songs of God's goodness and kindness and faithfulness towards us, because my heart certainly needed that as well. I I need you to have a little bit of grace with me today. We do know that um, in terms of methodology of online preaching, it helps to be able to move around a little bit and talk to different cameras. I am suffering a bit of a a bout of vertigo at the moment, um, which uh, came on suddenly during the week. Um, And so as I move around, the chance of me uh, lying down unconsciously on the stage uh, goes up dramatically, and I don't want to be the subject of some kind of viral preaching fail me. Um, that goes wild this week. And so if you don't mind, I'm gonna stay pretty close to the podium. And I know it's uncomfortable that you're gonna have to look at the top of my balding head, um, but I hope and pray that the scriptures and what the Lord led me to write in this sermon during the week is enough to hold your attention. Ordinarily, yeah, on other weeks, you get distracted by things like Aaron Ivey's ankles um, or his dad ankles, dankles as I like to call them. I won't subject you to that but you are gonna have to look a little bit at the top of my stationary head and I apologize for that. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. And where we jump into the text, Jesus had been causing somewhat of a scene. He's he's garnering a following as one does when you walk across the top of a stormy sea or when you feed 10,000 people off a little boy's lunch. And the religious elite of the day are not chuffed. They're not excited about him or his teachings or the following that he was garnering. And so they send a crew out to see him. They send the big boys from Jerusalem to go check on what is happening with Jesus and his disciples. And they engage Jesus in a series of questions that results in Jesus actually offending them. You're gonna, you're gonna learn um, as we go through the text that they take offense at the words of Jesus and that he's fine with that because he offends the scribes and the Pharisees with a very particular charge, an allegation. He calls them hypocrites. Now, now this is an offensive thing to be called. No one wants to be called a hypocrite. The word means one who pretends to be other than they really are. One who pretends to be other than they really are. It essentially exposes your life, or at least areas of your life, as something of a deceit, a ruse, a facade, a pretense. And no one wants that exposed in their lives, especially in an era, in a cultural moment that values authenticity almost above anything else as a value. And yet, friends, we all, if we're honest, live within a hypocrisy to a certain extent. We struggle to live out our own ideals all of the time. And we don't like being called out on that. But... We must listen, we must take heed, we must pay special attention to Jesus' teaching and rebuke on the subject for our own good for a couple of clear reasons this morning. Firstly, hypocrisy, especially religious hypocrisy, is one thing that Jesus seems borderline intolerant of. I love the gentleness and the humility and the kindness of our King Jesus. He is so patient with obviously broken and sinful people who know that they need help and rescue. He takes his time with them and he meets them where they are at and he speaks words of life and healing and hope over them. 
but he is significantly more stern and severe with those who try to maintain a pretense that they are not in fact broken and sinful and that they do not need rescue and redemption. So, so Jesus has stern words for religious hypocrites. So we should lean in if we fear that we might be one. Secondly, religious hypocrisy is one of the worst wounds we suffer in our current witness to the world. Brennan Manning once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, Manning was a believer, a devout one at that, someone who was passionate about the reputation of the church. But this is a regular claim made by those who don't even share our faith at all. Now I know, because I've had these discussions, that there is relevant and reliable pushback to that claim when made by an unbeliever, because that claim is usually filled with self-righteousness and hubris, which is, well, hypocritical, and should actually serve then as an invitation to the church, because they could join a community of hypocrites. Come on in, the water is lovely and warm. But friends, The charge is not without merit, and it should bring us pause as we consider, how do we reach a divided world? How do we show the world the love manifest of Jesus Christ through the love and unity of the people who who claim his name and who claim to walk in his teachings? Just this week, I take no joy in this. But the facade of another prominent evangelical leader's life has been exposed as a sham of self-righteousness, a deflection against the exposure of a deeply sinful inner life that has been hidden by the distraction of faux moralistic outrage for a long time. It turns out that much of the moral majority has in fact operated with moral bankruptcy and we've known it. And it's been shown to be true to a watching world. It's so hypocritical, friends, why? We are supposed to be the people who believe in grace, who believe that it's okay to actually fess up to your failings early and frequently and to expect mercy and therefore to bestow mercy on other people. We're supposed to be a people of no pretense because we believe in a savior who listens, listen, delights in forgiving repentant sinners and accepting us when we run to him in weakness and failure. Why then would we hide behind a ruse of strength? Just this week again, as the fractures in our society are laid bare for all to see and as many are hurting and crying out for empathy and love and help, I have seen so many of my Christian brothers and sisters adopt a posture of defensiveness in the name of some form of human ideology first, when there is opportunity for us to live in a unique posture, a unique one, because we're the people of Jesus, of brotherly love, of mercy, of empathy, of kindness. We should be the people in the world most willing and 
most motivated to reach across fractures, to step across aisles, to grab across divides, knowing that Jesus reached across the great divide to get us, and yet we respond. It seems to me, friends, in the most divided, the most defensive, and the most hostile of ways. What is wrong with us? I've had to silence most of my emails and social feeds this week. I've gone before the Lord in the age-old prophetic lament to ask, how long, oh Lord, will you tolerate these people forever? Change us, please. Change us, please. Now wait, if you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, tell him, Ross, it's probably you. <laughs> tell them, tell them. Oh, it's probably you. You see, we have drunk from the well of power, of pretense, of control, of the creation and projection of images of ourselves that we know that we cannot live up to. We have drunk deep of the waters of human hypocrisy. I have done it. Many of you have too. There are so many areas of my life, so many friends. I've been so convicted this week. So many areas of my life where my beliefs and my actions are not as closely aligned as they ought to be if they were genuinely held beliefs in the first place. I am a struggling religious hypocrite and I know it. And if you know me, you know it too. So the good news, friends, is that the text today is gonna be an invitation away from hypocrisy. It's gonna lay it bare, but it's also gonna say, step out of that, that's no way to live. That's not what I live. Step towards your savior who loves to meet with repentant sinners. This is an invitation that Jesus was actually extending to the scribes and the Pharisees, but they wouldn't repent. So let's look at it five ways from the text today that you can, can be a religious Pharisee. And, and the, the flip side of that is five ways to prevent ongoing religious Phariseeism from your life. Verse one of chapter 15. Um, there's a lot in this little setup. And so the first three points are gonna come just from these first two verses, but I promise to deal with the rest of the text uh, later on. It says, then Jesus was approached by Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem who asked, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat. Okay, how to be a religious hypocrite. How to tolerate and grow religious hypocrisy in your heart to the extent that you would get a rebuke from Jesus. Number one, first and foremost, focus on controlling the behavior of others. You wanna be a religious hypocrite? Just focus out there on controlling the behavior of others. This group of scribes and Pharisees has come from Jerusalem to where Jesus is at in the region of Galilee. Now this little detail that they were from Jerusalem is important. It means firstly that they've sent in the heavy hitters, right? These are the creme de la creme of religious scholars. The most respected of all of them would have been those who were in Jerusalem. Secondly, they had come all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, which is over 100 kilometers, I know. 
about 60 miles, right, that they have walked by foot out of their way through the Middle Eastern sun to go and witness the teachings of this obscure man that many were claiming was the son of God. And they have gone out of their way big time. This was on none of their calendars the week before to see Jesus. And when they finally get around to him, what do they do? They critique the rule keeping of Jesus' disciples at a meal. This is insane to me, friends. They were at a meal with Jesus. And what were they doing? They were critiquing the behaviors of Jesus' disciples. You're sitting with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and where are you looking? Not at him, at the behaviors of his followers, of people you don't know or aren't particularly interested in. It's astonishing hypocrisy to me. You ever played the game where you go like, hey, who would you wanna be at a, a dinner with, people alive or dead, right? When people ask me that, always one of the people on the list is, well, Jesus Christ, right? He'd be a fantastic dinner guest. And then your mind goes to like, well, what questions would you ask him? I've got so many. These guys sit with Jesus and they go like, hey, tell us why your disciples aren't washing their hands in the way that we make sure that our people wash their hands. It's insane, they miss the king of glory in pursuit of some kind of tradition. What makes it even more insane is that the ceremonial hand washing they refer to was highly disputed and not even stated anywhere as a requirement in the law. Friends, this wasn't a hygiene issue, right? In the COVID season, and we all show our hygiene to everyone else by washing for at least 20 seconds and making sure everyone else washes for at least 20 seconds, all right? My, my little daughter's in, in kindergarten, they put a little stamp tattoo, which is, you know, it raises some other biblical questions, but a little stamp tattoo on their hands and they have to wash until it's gone. She's got like no skin left, right? She's washing hands all the time. She's counting how many seconds daddy washes his hands for. This wasn't a hygiene issue though. This was a ceremony issue that I'll explain in a second. It was a tradition. They couldn't help themselves. They, they couldn't help but bind the conscience of others by insisting that they behaved in the way that they wanted them to behave so that they could control them, even though it wasn't actually uh, required of them by the law. Friends, now stop, you're going like stupid Pharisees, right? Before we beat up on them too much, we do this. We, we do this all the time. How much effort do we spend looking away from the sin of our own hearts and fretting over the lack of rule keeping of others who frankly aren't inside the scope of our care or responsibility. We go out of our way to bind the consciences of people who aren't even under our care. And then we bind their consciences over issues that aren't laid out as specifically as we would pretend they are for us in the scriptures. We leave Jerusalem to do it, judging the behaviors of people we don't know, scouring the internet to find the sinners out there, the group that we can vilify, presuming their lack of righteousness and in so doing, exposing our own hypocrisy. It is a great way to ensure that you never have to do the hard inner work of repentance, humility, and personal pursuit of holiness to keep your eyes focused on the apparent sins of others. All right, the second way to be a religious hypocrite is very closely linked, but it's distinct. Number two is you focus on measuring against 
the behavior of others. So not only do you obsess about their behavior, but you measure against it. You see, this hand-washing tradition was a relatively new tradition, uh, as I said, not based on a desire for personal hygiene, but for the removal of defilement, for the removal of the outside evidence of sin. You see, Exodus 30 prescribed that the priests needed ceremonial washing before ministering, but the tradition had extended this to encompass all of the people of Israel as a sign that they were removed from what they considered to be the defiling presence of Gentiles in their midst. Now the text will deal with this next week as Jesus speaks of what truly defiles us, but the thinking was that if you touched things that were touched by defiled people, that made you defiled. And in the daily rhythms and routines of life, the people would have touched many things that Gentiles had touched and they were therefore defiled externally by them and so they needed to cleanse themselves of the defilement of this outside people and display for all of their dinner guests their right standing before God through the ceremony. Here is the sentiment that underpins this notion, this tradition that Jesus rejects as binding. Here's the sentiment, it says, the problem is them. It's them, they're the icky ones, they're the sinful ones, and as long as we show people that we're removed from them, then we're all good. In order to be holy, we need to be cleansed from them. They, the other ones. The hand washing was a way to say, well, at least I'm not them. Thank God for that. Again, before you go, stupid Pharisees, what jerks. Please acknowledge that when we do that, we do the exact thing that they were doing. Ah, <laughs> oh, them, they're the problem, let's stop. Where do we do the same thing? Who is our them that we feel are the cause of the defilement of our society? <laughs> Who are we trying to wash ourselves clean of through an elaborate display of self-righteous separation? I'm not gonna get into examples this morning. I'm gonna ask Holy Spirit, convict our hearts. Challenge us. Again, friends, the idea isn't that we have no voice into what is genuinely sinful in the world. The idea is that we start with ourselves. Friends, just listen. We're going into a season where all of our prominent leaders are gonna lead with a narrative that says the problem is them. And the answer must be us, right? They're the problem, we're the answer. Christians reject that fundamentally. Christians in the spirit of G.K. Chesterton say the problem is us. The answer is Christ. Those are the trajectories of the narratives of our lives. All right, how to be a religious hypocrite. The third is that we need to focus on outward appearances of holiness instead of on the inner pursuit of holiness. Just focus on the external. Just focus on what's visible instead of doing the hard work of pursuing holiness ourselves. It has been fascinating for me this week to read some Jewish scholars and historians to understand this hand-washing ceremony and what sort of performance it morphed into. 
became so important to the routine of the day that an entire tractate of the Mishnah uh, called Yadayim is devoted to the required details. Water had to be poured, it had to be running water, it had to be effective. The scholars were divided over how far up the arm or hand it had to go. Some were just knuckles guys, some were absolutely wrist guys, some were all the way up to the elbow guys, like you're scrubbing in for surgery, right? But most believed that it had to definitely cover the wrist because uh, the, the, there's parts of, of, of your hand up here that, that could be defiled through the touching of things that Gentiles touched it. All of this though, importantly, was staged in the entrance of homes. And so you would walk in, they would look towards the bowl, and then you would show your degree of righteousness by how thoroughly you scrubbed your hands. Now friends, I actually believe that some of these ancient rites can be beautiful and can point to something beautiful. This may have been a beautiful tradition in its intent. I don't wanna diminish or discredit that. That would be foolish and unkind. But what you're gonna see in the rest of the chapter in Matthew and in the rest of Jesus' encounters with Pharisees in particular is that Jesus was grieved, grieved by outward displays of righteousness that didn't take root in a soft heart of repentance and the pursuit of holiness. Jesus' primary accusation against the Pharisees is that they spend all of their effort and energy on appearances while they ought to focus their energies on humble obedience, the type of humble obedience that no one gets to see. I was thinking this week as I was talking to a friend, you know what reveals a priority of outward appearance, outward appearance over inner transformation more than anything else? Repentance. The frequency and the nature and the fervor and the intensity of our repentance. Repentance is the way that we show that we care little for appearances so long as we can be right with God. It shows whose attention we value. Do we want God's attention? Repentance is the way to get it. Or do we want man's attention? Self-righteousness is the way to get it. We've believed the lie that says the more you mature in Christ, the, rest you'll, the, the less you'll have to repent of. No, friends, the closer you are to Christ, the more certain you'll be of his mercy, the more you will find yourself throwing yourself on his mercy, crying out in repentance, asking him to change the direction of your life. Repentance gives us a way. Friends, the church is going through a great reckoning. <laughs> Our hand-washing gestures are being shown for what they are. Our neediness, our weakness is being revealed for what it actually is. Will we press into that great awakening through lives of genuine, humble Jesus following? Or will we continue to settle for the outward appearance of holiness over the actual pursuit of holiness? Okay, I've just got a couple more minutes. Let me land this plane. Verse three, he answered them. Oh, this is powerful from Jesus. This is so inflammatory what he says to them. Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition. Remember they've asked, hey, why don't your disciples keep our tradition? He's like, well, why do, you, why do you not keep God's commandment in order to keep your tradition? For God said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, whoever tells his father or mother whatever benefit you might have received from me as a gift committed to the temple, he does not have to honor his father. In this way, you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Fourth way to be a religious hypocrite is to obey tradition even when it makes you disobey God's word. 
The Pharisees asked Jesus, why, why do you break with this tradition? Jesus beautifully flips and escalates the arguments by asking them, well, why are we asking questions? Why would you break God's commandments for the sake of your tradition? He sets up their behavior as adversarial to God, not just not ideal, adversarial, framing it um, with the argument that says, God said, but you say. Do you recognize that? It's the opposite of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, you guys are God's adversaries when you do this. Your tradition, which you embrace as the way to obey God, can set you up as people in opposition to the commands of God. Isn't that sobering? I believe that the Pharisees were zealous to obey God, at least in their original intent. But here Jesus said, you are actually opposing God by trying to prescribe ways to obey him outside of what he commanded. And then he gave a powerful example of how they were doing that by using a concept known as the law of Corbin, which was part of the tradition of the Pharisees. Let me explain it quickly just so you can understand this text. You see, the scriptures clearly commanded the people of Israel to honor their father and mother. That's, that's a binding commandment over God's people. Now, when we think of that, we think of honor primarily as respect, right? We think of it like, hey, answer their call occasionally, be kind to them, uh, help them when they can't figure out how to work their new remote, um, be honoring enough to ignore their Facebook political post, that sort of thing. We see that as honoring our father and mother. For the people of Israel and for many ancient cultures, responsibility was multi-generational in scope. And so honoring meant look after them. Family success and thriving wasn't about one generation, but about many. And so parents were to provide for kids in their youth, and then they were to give them an inheritance, and then young adults were to care for their parents in, the, in their old age with the inheritance that they had entrusted to their kids. It was like a social contract that kept society together. It was a safety net that kept people from falling into abject poverty. But some people didn't want to do that. And so they grabbed hold of her, religious law, a, a tradition known as Corbin, which means gift. The thinking was this, a person could ring fence a portion of their assets, like when you're filing a tax return, you can go like, this part is untouchable, right? They, they, they could do that as a gift for the temple treasury when they died, and then it couldn't be touched, even by creditors, and it couldn't be touched by needy parents. And so when parents were like, I need someone to stay, I need someone to feed me, sorry, this is Corbin, I've already allocated it to go to the temple when I die, which means I can spend it now when I live and I don't have to spend it on you. The Pharisees were fine with this. Jesus called it a wicked tradition that nullified the word of God. Now friends, a good question for us to ask this morning would be where do I embrace man-made systems and traditions at the expense of following the clear word of God? Spirit, help us again, convict us please. Where do I follow? man-made systems and traditions and ideologies at the expense of following the clear word of God? Where do we choose outward appearances of righteousness when we know that they force us to embrace things that are contrary to genuine righteousness? I'm a relative outsider in American thought and ideology. I love being in this country, that's why I'm here, right? but I have been amazed to observe that by and large, in our churches, people are more formed and discipled by their worldly ideologies than they are by the scriptures. 
And when you have a two-party system, what people then give into is I in, inherit and I grab hold of um, the hope that I see in these man-made traditions, even when they clearly, clearly disobey the word of God. And so I'll just swallow them wholeheartedly because it's better than them, right? And we end up being religious hypocrites. Some we wholeheartedly embrace an ideology that elevates our individual liberties good, even when it lacks the decency, empathy, and compassion required of Christ followers towards fellow image bearers. Or we wholeheartedly embrace an ideology that advances many of our desired causes of social emancipation good, even when it contains elements that clearly contradict God's design for humanity as revealed in scripture and thousands of years of redemptive history. But we place our hope in those man-made traditions. Oh. Now you might go, Ross, wait, these were religious traditions you're talking about in the scriptures. Now you're talking about political traditions. Our political traditions are so entrenched that they have become religious in nature. And sometimes they force us to disobey God in order to follow them without critique and without rejection of some of the tenets that we find. Disobey the word. Friends, we are more thoughtful than this. We are an exiled people living for another kingdom, obeying the word when it rejects the traditions of our deeply held thoughts and ideologies. Verse seven, let's close. Jesus looks at them and says, hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines, human commands. So the fifth way for us to be a religious hypocrite is for us to just tolerate the chasm between our lips <laughs> and our hearts. Jesus drops a massive bomb on the Pharisees here when he quotes Isaiah 29 and essentially says, that prophecy is about people like you. This would have been incredibly inflammatory to religious scholars. They knew Isaiah 29 well. They knew that it spoke of a rebuke and a woe from God that said that those who lived like this would end up being confounded in their own wisdom and separated from God as a result. It is a stern warning. Jesus says you are the recipients of that warning. Why? There were hypocrites who appeared more pious than they really were. There was a big gap between their public life of religiosity and their private lives of hard-heartedness. Friends, oh, I know it's a hard word today, right? But if you want to slowly strangle your spiritual vitality, just continue to live with the gap between who you work to appear to be and who you actually are. <laughs> just let it grow. Tolerate it. Defend it protected from coming to the light. And you will feel the dim light of gospel hope in your heart start to flicker and fade as you do. Just keep publicly washing those hands instead of privately bending those knees and refuse to receive the woe from the mouth of our Savior himself and watch as our spiritual hearts shrivel and grow cold and angry and defensive, and accusatory, but not repentant. Well, what's the alternative 
this morning because if I closed there, you'd be like, yeesh, thanks, man. Um, that was uh, unhelpful. The alternative to religious hypocrisy is a life of humble repentance. The alternative to religious hypocrisy is a life of humble repentance. You see, friends, I know we're always gonna fail in a way to live out our ideals. What do you do with that gap? You repent. (laughs) You throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and you trust in his grace. Not seeking to control the righteousness of others, but doing the inner work of conviction, spiritual formation, and an honest and open embracing of grace through repentance. Not comparing yourself to the relative unrighteousness of others, but rather receiving the righteousness of Christ, freeing you to love others as yourself without needing to be better than them. Not seeking to defend your reputation at all costs, but honestly and openly confessing sin and need and in so doing, bringing Christ great joy as he loves to forgive sinners and to cleanse them of unrighteousness. Not finding your identity in a tradition or in a construct or in an ideology outside of scripture, but freely fighting for what's best in accordance with God's word, knowing that will place us at odds with all of our traditions at some point and refusing to tolerate the gap between what our lips say and how our hearts live, rather tearing down the gap through a constant dependence on Christ for our very lives and our very hope and everything else that we need. Friends, there's great hope for hypocrites. There is grace for religious pretenders. You just have to relinquish the things that maybe you have established to help you obey him that actually end up making you oppose him. Let's not be Pharisees. Let's not miss out on dinner with Jesus (laughs) because we are worried about the rule keeping of some of his followers. Let's do the hard work of the inner life. Let's trust in grace. Let's go to him with the gaps. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I pray that it speaks powerfully and hopefully into the hearts of our people today. I pray for repentance, God, to bust out good old-fashioned revival of hearts. Help us to lay down everything. Show us, Holy Spirit, only you can show us. Show us everything that stands in the way of us obeying your word and help us to readily lay it down and give it away. Help us today to experience the joy of repentance. Friends, if your hypocrisy has been revealed by the, by the Spirit today, don't hide. Don't hide. Tell someone and then run to your king and watch him forgive you and make you new. In Jesus' name, amen.